This podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy Honors Program, an apologetics learning experience designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the Christian faith and biblical creation. Launching early 2019, the program offers video and audio training with downloadable course workbooks, expert interviews, and exclusive Q&A sessions with leading creation scientists and apologists, quarterly ebooks covering a wide variety of subject matter, and even a private Facebook community where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. If you want to be notified when the program goes live and even help us design the experience from the ground up, head on over to www.jointca.co today and sign up for the waitlist. You'll get early access to the private Facebook group for free as a thank you for joining. You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week we have a very different kind of uh, lesson for you, something different than we have ever done here uh, before. Uh, I was asked last week to participate uh, in an interview with a friend of mine, uh, an acquaintance of mine I met online who also has um, an an apologetics uh, ministry, and his name is Pastor Mark Lambert. Pastor Mark Lambert. And uh, Brother Mark has got his own podcast. It's called the Hey Pastor Podcast uh, that he produces. And I want to say it's a once monthly podcast. I think I think it's only once a month. But anyway, he's got a website and um, it, it's uh, amassing uh, a, a good little following. And he's got people who, who listen to him and, and, and read his stuff. So I highly encourage you to uh, to head on over there and check out the Hey Pastor podcast. Of course, you can download that, uh, certainly in the Apple Podcasts directory and possibly other places as well. So um, so check that out. Uh, and um, But what we are going to do, uh, Brother uh, Mark has graciously allowed us to be able to uh, use the audio and share it, uh, share this interview uh, here on the Creation Academy for this week's lesson. So what you're going to hear is uh, an interview, uh, Pastor Mark Lambert interviewing me on evidence for a worldwide flood. Uh, The specific question is, why did God hide uh, the evidence for a worldwide flood? If, if, If in fact there was a worldwide flood, why did God hide all the evidence. Well, that's certainly a strange kind of question, and we answered it in that podcast interview. So I'm going to, without further ado, play that for you now. Okay, then. Uh, thank you for joining me, Steve Schram. Make sure I pronounce that right. Um, just to kind of, just to kind of help anyone who um, may be listening and doesn't know you. I know we probably run in similar circles, so some might, but um, introduce yourself and give what I like to call the part of why should I care what you have to say. Um, so anyone listening, just let them know about who you are and what it is that you do. And Yeah, sure. Why, 
Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, my name's Steve Schramm. Uh, I-, I became interested in this stuff probably about oh three three or four years ago. I- I've been raised in church my entire life. Uh, I was saved at four years old. Um, and so, of course, you know how that goes. Sometimes you, you, you grow up and you do things, certainly, that you regret anyway. Uh, but I've known the Lord for a long time. And uh, honestly, I mean, I was raised in a good church. I just never really had any reason um, to, to doubt that what I heard at church was was true. And, uh, you know, I don't know, it was a few years ago, three or four years ago, I was at my, my job that I currently have now. And I was just, uh, I was sitting in the car because I used, I used to be the runner there. Now I do IT work, but I used to be the runner. And so I would have to go deliver documents like to the courthouse and things like that. And, and, uh, and I was sitting in my car and I thought, you know, what if this Jesus character like never even existed? <laughs> and uh, I don't know why I thought that. I mean, I used to drive around just listening to to preaching all the time and, and gospel music. I had played gospel music professionally for a while. I uh, was called to preach by that time. And, and so I, I thought, you know, just what if this stuff is never true? And uh, well, you know, as they say, the rest is history. I just started studying apologetics uh, and honestly found that I couldn't get enough of it. And uh while in in some of the circles that I run in, some of the some of the preaching and things like that are kind of uh, high high energy, uh, you know, kind of shouting, having a good time, going to camp meeting kind of thing, and I enjoy that. I found that I was just a lot different. Uh, I didn't preach that way. Uh, I didn't I didn't think that way. And I began to read more and and grow more in the Lord, and I really began to see the need to introduce uh, reasons why we should believe what we should believe. And, uh, and so I've just been on a journey kind of helping to try to get others to see the same kind of thing that I saw, that uh, when those questions come, that's not a time to run away. Thank the Lord, <laughs> you know, that I give him the credit that he preserved me uh, through that. And rather than uh, running away or, or shying away from that, I began to study and learn a lot more. And so here I am today. I just want to help others to kind of see that uh, Christianity is reasonable. Uh, certainly that creation is reasonable. Um I'm certainly passionate about a literal six-day young age for creation, somewhere around 6,000, 6,100 years ago. I can't be dogmatic about that, but I'm I'm passionate about that. And in a day where much of the church is kind of leaving that interpretation, uh, I'm skeptical uh, of leaving that. I think there's good reasons to believe it. And so uh, I think our subject matter today kind of goes to that. Okay, thank you for that. Um, As... You're already aware, obviously. I, I was asked a question, part of a different project that I'm part of that's going on. And part of the question is, um, you know, I, I try not to insert my own thoughts of what they might be, like tone of voice. It was a text question, so I'm not really sure what their tone was. But it basically asked, why is it that if there was this flood that God hid all the evidence? Uh, of course, that sounds a little loaded that, you know, why is God hiding it? And so in that answer that I'm giving for that project, I can't go into all these details. And I'm not an expert on it anyway, so that's why you're here, um, more more of an expert on it than I am. Um, look, much like you, uh, I, I am a, a creationist. I, I, I believe that is what the Bible teaches, and I am cautious and hesitant to abandon that. Um but I haven't traveled in those circles and really focused on that as a part of my ministry and study for several years. And so I'm a little um, 
rusty on a lot of that. And so since you're kind of in the mix on that right now, I thought I'd bring you on to just, just talk about um, the flood, uh, about evidence for the flood. And so I know you have some thoughts and ideas prepared, so I guess I'll just um, let you take it away and I'll interrupt to mess things up now and then. Um, as we go. Yeah, well, you know, I really like the way that you said that. Uh, it it kind of seems like a, a loaded question. Uh, you know, I hope I don't go on too much of a tirade here, but one of the things when I really started studying about apologetics and answering objections to the Christian faith is I found uh, that just a little bit of uh, learning how to, to use logic and, and learning learning when people are asking loaded questions, that's something that is very, very valuable, and most people aren't trained to think that way. Uh, and don't get me started on education either, but I think that our, our education system could do a little better job of, of teaching along these lines. And so you said that, you know, it's why did God hide evidence for the flood. Well, in logical terms, we call that a complex question. And and basically what, what that is, it's when somebody uh, begs the question, that is, it assumes what they're trying to prove. And it's kind of buried underneath of another question that is kind of meant to confuse you. And this usually happens with why questions, because a lot of times with, with why questions, as it goes to God, uh, there are not very many answers. Um, but in this case, because it's a complex question, it assumes that God did hide evidence for the flood. Uh, and, of course, we don't think he did. And uh, so when somebody asks that question, you have to, first of all, say, wait a minute. You know, what are you, what, what assumptions are going into the question that you're asking? Uh, because truly, there are two different uh, ways in terms of geology now. There are two different ways of, of really looking at the world. Um, and we'll talk about that as, as we go through. But uh, I just really thought it uh, pertinent to talk about that notion of evidence really quick. What, what actually is evidence? What, what, can we, what can we say is evidence for something? And so I wrote down this little definition. Um, uh, evidence is information presented as facts which either support or or oppose a suggested proposition. Does that kind of make sense? Uh, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's it's it, evidence is is a fact. Uh, it when when we look at the world, we look at facts. Uh, we all look at the same rocks. We all look at the same fossils. We all look at the same. Uh, animals. We all look at the same DNA as far as scientists go. Uh, so we're all looking at the same thing, but it can be interpreted according to a paradigm. And so I think there's a huge mistake that's often made on the origins debate on this front. And as I've heard you mention before, this debate is really not about science. Science goes into it, but the real debate is about history. And the Bible is a book of history. Uh, it's not a science textbook, thank God, <laughs> uh, because God changes not and his word changes not. Uh, the Bible says that his word is forever settled in heaven. And so when we do our science, it's got to be done in the context uh, of, of history. And there are those who would say that we didn't discover about long ages and things like that until until Darwin came on the scene, but that's just not true. From a philosophical perspective, uh, people have been speculating about the a long age for the earth for, for thousands of years. The ancient Greeks were the first ones to really start talking about this kind of thing. And so it's really, which way uh, do you want to look at the world? Do you want to look at uh, what 
what what you and I at least seem to think a face value reading of the Bible suggests, which would be, you know, a younger age. I say young, but you know, around six thousand years or so. Uh, or you know, do we are we dealing with deep time? And how you answer the question of the flood really depends uh, on what you think about about history. So the real question is, since we know that according to the Bible, a global flood did happen, there should be evidence. So what do we expect? And what do we find? I think that's really a better question to ask because you can't uh, you can't look for evidence for a global flood using old age assumptions. It doesn't work. So you have to you have to understand the history that's there first, and then you can carry out forensic science. Absolutely. You know, um, talking about evidence, one thing that I will often say that I think helps people because everyone loves crime shows. Yeah. Um, is that in a court case, I don't know if you've ever served on a jury. I served on a drug trafficking jury on a federal case wow. um, here, a few, here a few years ago. And the thing is, if you, you know, even if you watch TV, you notice they all have the same evidence. Mm. Right? The, the prosecution doesn't have its little group of evidence and the defense has its little group of evidence. Yeah, so true. You know, they all have all the same evidence. You're actually not allowed to hoard evidence. Right. If, if, if you're an attorney and you find something, you actually have to share that with the other side. Um, and, and but then they're both making their cases, guilt or innocent, from the exact same pile of evidence. Yeah. And notice how differently you can interpret that. I mean, you, you and of course, there's always some kind of and this plays into the origins debate, too. I mean, the the attorneys uh, and I work for attorneys, by the way, so I know a little bit about this. Uh, but attorneys uh, will not try to color necessarily the evidence, but they will try to paint a picture in the mind of the jury as to what as to the way they should interpret the evidence. They're, they're trying to paint an overall paradigm. Yes. Uh, 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 and and like you said, one side is guilt, that's the paradigm, and then the other side is innocence. And how you interpret the evidence uh, will largely uh, be determined on whether the attorney has convinced you whether you should be looking for guilt or innocence. Right, right, absolutely. Okay, cool. And uh, I, I love how you mentioned, you know, because we talked about it before, the Bible is evidence. Right. People like to treat it as it's just this other thing. It's this holy book. It's just a bunch of myths. Da, da, da. No, it's historical documents. Even if you even if you don't think that it's reliable or even if you don't think that it you know needs to be believed, it's still evidence. It's still information that's out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, and that, that's often seen. Well, you know, people talk about uh, uh, and uh, admittedly, I kind of traffic in Old Testament circles more than New Testament, at least in this season of my life. Um, and what's interesting is when we start talking about the New Testament and uh, records for Jesus and things like this, people start uh, talking. Well, why isn't uh, why isn't Jesus mentioned by all these other people and, and yada, yada, yada. And, and I'm not so big on this, but um, I, I think the last I heard that there is is mention of Jesus in like 17 extra biblical sources. I think my number's right there. I could be wrong, but I think I'm, I think I'm somewhere uh, in the ballpark there. Uh, but I like the way yeah. Greg Kokel said it. Uh, he wrote in one of his recent Solid Ground articles there at Stand to Reason. He said, that's really not the right question. The right question is, why has anybody... Uh, any reason at all to write even the writings that we do find. Why should anybody have written about uh, otherwise unimportant, you know, 
Jew, you know, hanging around in the first century, uh, you know, this should be a time when a, a carpenter from Nazareth certainly shouldn't be appearing in anybody's historical information, and yet we do find him. Uh, and of course, the primary documents being the Gospels. So we have to, we right. have to again interpret things according to the evidence we have, and historical documentation certainly is evidence. That's right. Absolutely. Okay, so on to this thing about evidence for the flood. Do we do we have some? Whoa. Yeah. Well, the <laughs> first, you of course uh, you first uh, did mention the historical documents, and that, and that's for a reason. Uh, scripture seems to mention a global flood. Uh, there are those who want to say uh, that it is not a global flood, that it's a local flood. I think there are good reasons not to believe that. That's not the subject of our discussion today. But I just want to read real quick one of the passages from the flood that kind of gives us an idea of why we think it should be global. Because be, first of all, in order to understand the science, we have to understand the history. So just real quick, uh, I think it'll be pertinent to read this. And I, I read from the King James Version myself. So, so this is what we have uh, in Genesis 7 and 17 through 23. And I'm going to kind of give some emphasis in some obvious places that should uh, help everybody to understand where I'm coming from. Uh, it says this, And the waters prevailed. And were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast, and of every creeping thing that creeped upon the earth. And every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, and of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. Now, you know, to me, it's kind of hard to read that and hear anything but a global flood. And I, I, you know, I really try to be sympathetic towards other views. I'm, I'm not hostile towards other views. I, I break bread with those guys all the time. Uh, and, and some of them are, are, are uh, you and I have mutual acquaintances who, who hold to these other views. But uh, it's really, really hard to read that and, and get anything else. To me, it almost seems that if you're going to interpret anything other than a global flood with that, it seems like you would have to be coming to it with... Uh, a presupposed history that is different than the one that we have been talking about. Um, and, you know, and to a couple other things, this was kind of scripture and geology, but the Bible mentions a, a Garden of Eden. And of course, there are different views as to whether or not that was literal. It's my belief that the Bible is literally describing an actual event, Garden a Garden of Eden uh, with Adam and Eve and talking serpents, the whole nine yards. Uh, that's my understanding of it. And the fact of the matter is that from a geological perspective, no such place as is described as the Garden of Eden in the Bible exists today. No such right. place. And so this suggests that the topography was altered uh, and a global flood would certainly accomplish that. Um, you know, earlier you uh, invoked the name uh, Greg Kokel. And what's interesting is, as much as I love Brother Greg, um, he's not a creationist. He's not a young earth guy. Um, he, he admits to being kind of agnostic on the flood, but I think he leans towards the local. Right, yeah. You know? mm -hmm. um, and so uh, one thing I've heard him say 
and I've heard others say it, is that this language, um, you're emphasizing those words that encompass everything, um, that it's kind of hyperbolic language. We have other examples in the Bible where um, terms, uh, using terms like all and every, um, are used in places where it's obviously not saying every and all. Um, however, and and might get your thought on this. My, my thought is I look and I'm like, okay, that might be possible if we're talking about like a phrase. But the entire story, everything it mentions, all the hills under all the heaven, all the creatures, all the life, everything, everywhere. I mean, it, it, it's sitting just like a phrase. It repeatedly emphasizes. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's, you know, uh, there are a lot of Bible teachers who, who are, you know, will say that every single word uh, that we find in the Bible uh, matters. It's there intentionally, inspired by God, and I, I, and I think that. And uh, it, it's kind of one of those things, like you said, I suppose that's that's possible, um, but it seems extraordinarily unlikely. Uh, based on what we actually have, it's certainly not the most clear or perspicuous um interpretation of what's there. And uh, not only that, but there are other places in Scripture which refer back to this event that help to confirm uh, the actual context and that it should be seen as um, as global. For example, the Rainbow Covenant uh, at the end of the flood is one of those things that uh, if God, I mean, local floods have destroyed uh, total geographic areas. I mean, I don't know that you could say they destroyed every living substance, but it depends on which kind of cherries you're wanting to pick here. But um, <laughs> it, so if, if, I mean, if God sends uh, a local, another local flood with as devastating effects or nearly as devastating effects as the first one, is, is that, you know, um, is that God kind of playing like you see the tv commercial with the brother and sister fighting on the beach like i'm not touching you like are we are we just very quickly approaching that and just saying well it's technically not because you know these 10 people still lived um or do we say no uh, a global flood has not happened again and that's consistent with god's promise um jesus references the flood uh in matthew 24 uh, verses 37 through through 39 it says as the days of noah were so shall the coming of the son of man be for as in the days uh that they were before the flood they were eating and drinking marrying giving in marriage until the day that noah entered the ark um and knew not until the flood came and took them all away so shall all the coming of the son of man be and so this is the flood juxtaposed against another worldwide event um, and we actually find Peter doing this as well in in Second Peter three verses three through seven. He talks about both the creation and the coming judgment with the flood in the middle there. So uh, all things considered, if you just take all of the evidence, it's it's really hard to to think of this as being something other than uh, than a global flood uh, as far as scripture goes. Absolutely, that that's where I land. I'm I'm sympathetic to my brothers and sisters who disagree. It's not a salvation issue, so like you said, we can break bread. I just, you know, think they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, that, and, and that's okay. Uh, I, I, one thing I've learned about apologetics is healthy uh, healthy disagreements are a good thing. I've I've written about yeah. this. Yeah, so I, I think it's I think that's a good thing. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are secondary issues that I'm wrong on, and I'm just convinced I'm right. I'm going to get to heaven and go, oh, I'm sorry, my bad. Um, and so. 
all right, so yeah, we can start talking about some of the uh, the other stuff. <laughs> uh, the yeah, more, the more uh, yeah, I shouldn't say more exciting, but certainly interesting. Uh, well, just by way of general background here, uh, believe it or not, catastrophism. Now, I mentioned earlier that there are kind of two ways of looking at uh, the evidence, at least in terms of geology, um, and that is catastrophism versus. Uh, gradualism, or also it's commonly called uniformitarianism. And you can really sum these up pretty easily. Uh, uniformitarianism is just the saying that the present is the key to the past, meaning that everything, um, past processes and activities, rates of decay, things like that, have always been the same as they are today. And under this way of understanding things, uh, the Earth is interpreted to be about 4.5 billion years old, uh, and the universe to be about 13.8 billion years old. Now, under the other understanding, uh, catastrophism, uh, the idea is that large scale catastrophes were responsible for the shaping of the earth, for the topography of the earth, the way it is today, and even um, the universe to some extent. And uh, the way that you, you know, interpret your evidence is going to fall between one of those two things. Now, there is kind of this neo-catastrophism view going around today, and that's um, largely uh, probably the view of most geologists today. And that would say that uniformitarianism is basically true, but we can also allow for some catastrophe uh, every now and then <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, it, it's possible. Um, and as more and more of the geologic information is interpreted um, to have happened by catastrophe, uh, we literally find at any given time, mil millions of years of time, eroding away in the rock record <laughs> uh, with each right. new discovery that is contributed to catastrophism. And so uh, uh, hopefully, I'm hopeful that it's just a matter of time. Uh, but, you know, I know one day every knee shall bow, but until that point, you know, we're going to keep fighting for this. So uh, the first kind of uh, model for the Earth kind of being the way it is was actually uh, presented by a guy named Antonio Snyder Pellegrini. And this was in 18... 58. And if you traffic in the origins debate at all, you know that his uh, news was actually quite a bit of uh, not something to be excited about in light of the fact that Darwin published his work just one year later <laughs> in 1859. Mm -hmm. Everybody started talking about what Darwin was doing. But uh, this Snyder Pellegrini character actually developed uh, the first theories of what we know today as plate tectonics. And most people learn about this in school, learn about how uh, the continents are moving at about the slow rate that your fingernail grows and things like this. Uh, but the first model of plate tectonics was actually a rapid model put in place by this guy. And he was also the first one to suggest that the continents had were were broken apart and were once together at one point in the past. And in fact, the kind of secular notion of Pangea was originally developed by this guy who looked at the first chapter of Genesis and said that, hmm. well, wait a minute. Genesis says that all the seas were kind of gathered together as a heap and, and the dry land appeared out of that. And so he kind of inferred from that that the dry land uh, was all together in one place. And that is exactly uh, where this whole thing began. Um, and there are some who tried to deny plate tectonics, 
But that is very, very hard to do uh, in, in light of all the evidence. Um, yeah, I, I've lived in Southern California, so I have firsthand <laughs> experience with plate tectonics. That, yeah, that's, uh, I've, never, I've never had that pleasure. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I hear it's uh, yeah, quite interesting. Um, yeah, and so there's just, there's just tons of evidence that, that plate tectonics must be, must be true. Um, I, I mean, we could go into some of that, but you know, briefly, continents on either side of the Atlantic Ocean have complementary shapes. Uh, you know, you can see this if you look at a globe; it's kind of obvious. It's as if as they broke apart from a single continent sometime in the past. Um, there are geologic features and even fossils um, that are only found in certain locations that can be matched between continents that are on either side of the Atlantic Ocean, but they're not found in between. Um, uh, it, yeah, it, it's really crazy. Um, even certain mountainous features, like some of the Appalachian and Scandinavian mountain folds, uh, mineral deposits, all kinds of things. Um, there are similar matchings between Antarctica and Australia, and between Antarctica and India. Um, and mid-ocean ridges, in fact, uh, are, are between those where the ocean sediments that are, as they go away from that ridge, are increasing in age. But the geologic features across the oceans uh, that are matched between the continents are younger. So this is exactly what would be expected if these uh, continental pairs were once in contact but then became separated. Um, okay, yeah. so did, did just, to be, um, just to be clear what I think I just heard you say. So um, you have similar features on opposite sides of an ocean that are dated at a particular date, but then as you go towards... Um, what should be the you know the middle? What should be younger? It's actually dating as older, in, in, in the ocean. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So so that that, that would actually just kind of I don't know turn the whole dating method <laughs> thing on its head. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, but again, there's a little bit of nuance there with the way that the seafloor replaces itself and things like that. Um, and so I don't know that you, I don't know how much radiometric dating is done on those kinds of rocks because the ocean floor is literally being replaced. Um, but yeah, right. so there are these features in between them that um, really seem to make plate tectonics, uh, uh, you know, a the only reasonable explanation uh, by all accounts. And so this is why most geologists hold to that. And so, uh, but with all of that success, uh, there are things that can't be explained. And I love reading after Dr. Kurt Wise. He is uh, an absolute genius, with, in my opinion, uh, with regards to uh, these issues. He's a paleontologist, which means he is professionally trained um, in both biology and geology. And uh, I love to read after him. And he mentioned a couple things that are a problem just on regular old uh, run-of-the-mill plate tectonics, like direct satellite uh, measurements of plate motion are somewhat conflicting. Um, some of the sediments in ocean trenches show extension rather than compression. And the interiors of some ocean slabs uh, in the mantle also show compression rather than extension. Um, or rather, they show um, uh, compression rather than extension. And although they're often presented as reasons not to actually hold to plate tectonics, they may just indicate that it worked differently in the past. And so that's where this model of Earth history was originally developed by a bunch of creationists, uh, including Dr. Wise, but others as well. Um, and it included hard rock geologists, soft rock geologists, um, geophysicists, uh, atmosphere atmospheric scientists. All these guys got together and developed a model in around 1994 that they presented and called 
catastrophic plate tectonics. And mm. even today, in 2018, this is the most widely held and developed flood model there is. And the reason is because it makes all of the same sense. In other words, it explains all of the same data that conventional plate tectonics does. And also, most of the things that plate tectonics, uh, conventional plate tectonics, does not explain. Um, it's pretty remarkable the way this works. You know, what's interesting, um, and I'm trying to remember the name, kind of the geology guy who kind of got the whole um, sort of modern creationist movement rolling. Yeah, uh, you're um, talking about um, um, John uh, um, Whitcomb and Morris. Yes. What's interesting is um, most of uh, any uh, criticisms of creationism or flood geology that I hear are aimed at 50, 60 year old ideas um, that they put forward. Um, I haven't even heard of what, what you're talking about from the 90s. Um, Maybe some bits and pieces, you know, here or there or something, but I haven't actually, you know, been told, hey, you know, back in the 90s, a group of guys got together and, you know, here's a creation flood model. It's it, everything gets aimed at um, what, what was said in the 70s and 60s. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the reality of it is, is that uh, there are very few. I mean, I have yet to read, actually. I, I've looked for some, but I couldn't find a professional criticism of this that I mean there are a few a, a few things floating out there that deal with individual problems with it but largely speaking though there are not very many um problems with, I mean there are problems with this model there are things that need to be worked out but every scientific model has problems the big bang has right. many many problems recognized by mm -hmm. the scientists who hold to it so we can't we can't just say oh your model's not perfect um it must be wrong and the shoe you know needs to be on the other foot we can't we can't say that a model is wrong just because it's imperfect on the other side that's a bad argument but right we need to understand that if we've got something that explains the same data that uh, that ninety you know however many percent of the world scientists hold to this one model of plate tectonics we've got another model that comes in and says hey look we can explain all that and some that we've got something worth considering and you know pardon me but the you know the refutation on rationalwiki.com just isn't going to cut you know you know cut it <laughs> you know we're, we're going to need something a little bit more you know I had I had a guy I was talking to and he was a good guy ex Christian um, he used to be a pastor and he converted to an atheist and uh you know i said well have you ever even heard of this and of course he hadn't and he, he gives me this you know little article from rational wiki and i'm like really like i mean this is you, you've got probably right. you know five or six here or maybe even more i, I, I can't count this early in the morning apparently as we're recording this but uh we've got uh, some of the most well-respected scientists in terms of creationism i mean these are most of these guys are uh, even respected just as peers in their community by secular scientists who are coming together and saying, look, this thing works. You know, we're going to need to do better than rational wiki to say that it doesn't. Um, yeah. And, and, and I, you know, we, we don't have time to go into all of it because I'm sure you want to talk about some actual rocks and fossils and things like that. But <laughs> the, the bottom line is that when you hear of continental drift, 
um, in terms of conventional plate tectonics, this is what you learn about uh, in, uh, you know, in, in grade school even, continental drift. What we're talking about is continental sprint. So we're talking about the same exact kind of thing that's happening uh, in conventional plate tectonics theory, uh, but much, much faster. Um, we're talking about uh, instead of, you know, uh, uh, a mile per every, you know, thousand to two thousand years or so uh, in, of, 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 um, of movement, or less. We're talking about we're talking about meters per second. We're talking about continents moving at meters per second in this model. And that's one thing I wanted to ask because you know you're talking plate tectonics, and I can just hear the old Earth people going, "Yeah, uh, plate tectonics uh, proves that it can't be young Earth because it would take way too much time. You don't have enough time in you know six, seven, ten, you know, whatever thousand years for the continents to spread. But on this model. In this model, it's quick. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it, it's very quick and and reasonable. And one of the questions, one of the criticisms that you could level against it is say, well, what started it going? Uh, you know, what what started the process? And here's the thing, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't really need to know. Um, multiple things have been suggested. There, uh, you know, some people say that maybe maybe God slung a meteor out of the earth and that, uh, a meteor kind of you know crack things and got things started maybe it was a divine you know god spoke and it happened maybe uh, one guy has suggested that um the earth kind of started to destabilize at the time of the fall and led up to a massive geological event that caused um the fountains of the great deep in genesis 7 11 to to break open and then the rest of this you know ensued from there um I don't know. I don't know what caused it. All I know is that the modeling that has been done, um, even as far back into the 80s, uh, is when this began to be worked on and, and finally was culminated in, in the mid-90s. But um, all of the modeling that has been done suggests that this is entirely, entirely possible for this process to to, to happen. And all, it, all really, really that has to happen is the ocean floor has to crack. Um, it, you have to assume in this, and there's good reasons to that we don't really have time to get into today, but you have to assume that the entire pre-flood ocean floor was cold. But as long as you make that assumption, everything works. Uh, the ocean floor can can crack. It triggers the fountains of the great deep to, to, to open up. Magma starts to fill in those spaces. It flash boils the water, which produces supersonic jet streams. Um, and, and there's actually a really, really good video, uh, remind me to tell you about later, on this that you can find on YouTube that it, it shows and animates this whole process. Very well done. Um and basically, the, those jet streams go up into the upper atmosphere. Radiation from space cools it. It falls down as global rain, possibly uh, what we could understand as the windows of heaven uh, from the flood account. And uh, and that's it. I mean, so you've got water coming from below and above, as described in the flood account. And uh, everything is happening very, very, very quickly. Um, continents moving with billions, literally, of times the force um, than we see them moving uh, today. And so we've got some some really interesting things that we can explain on that model that are kind of difficult, you know, for old age theories. You know, what's interesting occurs to me, again, I'm no scientist, so I'm sure, you know, those who are have kind of figured what different effects this may have been. But people talk about just the destructive force and there's no way. But I'm like, if the world's covered with water, and all of this cataclysmic, violent geological stuff is going on under the water, right? The, 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 the effects of it on the surface are going to be mitigated. 
Yeah. A lot of that shock force of the violence of what's going on is being absorbed by the water. Yeah. And uh, you're exactly right. And a lot of uh, um, what's interesting is uh, one of the criticisms um, leveled against the young earth, actually, I won't mention his name, but by one of our mutual friends um, is, well, what about all these meteors? What about all these meteors that if any one of them have impacted the earth, uh, it would have just caused a global destruction phenomenon, yada, yada, yada. And so how do we deal? I mean, the earth would be ringing from the effects of that for, for much more than the time that we think the whole, you you know, Earth has been here. Uh, so what's what's going on with that? And uh, there's actually been a lot of research done on this by different uh, creation scientists, and they propose that probably most of the Earth's um, cataclysmic activity uh, happened during flood year. And again, we don't have time, but there's there's good evidence uh, that you can look up uh, on different websites that will uh, that will kind of help you to see that. Uh, and if it happened during flood year, then we're talking about a cataclysmic event, at least for the Earth, and some people have even argued um, that the cataclysm extended out in, in, into space, and this is reasonable. I mean, we actually have, you know, evidence for the, the you know, moon being bombarded and things, possibly by things catapulted from the Earth. I mean, we, there's really, really interesting stuff you can start digging into, and you can go as deep as you want, but uh, yeah, catastrophe, uh, catastrophe is not a problem uh, for the young age view. It's actually uh, an expectation of it, so... Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, clock is ticking. So, how about some specific uh, other uh, evidences? Yeah. We can yeah. Sure. Hunter? So, uh, w one of the things that we that we see uh, is, is fossils. Of course, uh, we see fossils in the earth. That is no doubt. Um, what What does it take to form a fossil? Okay. Well, uh, uh, for some reason, what is kind of the conventional understanding of things is it takes time to form fossils. Um, but here's the thing. Time itself does not cause fossils. Conditions, correct conditions, cause fossils. Um, right. What you need is rapid the rapid movement of, of water uh, or mud. Uh, you need fossils to be preserved very quickly. Otherwise, you are going to have uh, other things getting them, scavengers and, and things like that. And what's interesting is fossils are only found in sedimentary layers. So that is, right. these are layers that have been uh, laid down due to uh, uh, sediment. They form sediment. So they're defined as this, naturally occurring material that is broken down by processes of weathering and erosion and is subsequ subsequently transported by the action of wind, water, or ice and or by the force of gravity acting on the particles. So these are things that can create... Um, sediment. And fossils are only found in sedimentary layers. So they're not found in layers, uh, obviously, that uh, that we know were just cooled magma. So this is um, cause for question, at least, to say, okay, well, we know that uh, water and the movement of mud and the transporting of these layers is the main way that sediment is formed. How come the vast majority of fossils we find is in that kind of rock. So that's that's at least a good a good starting point. So there are a couple, and again, this is kind of all overarching um, stuff. This is kind of general stuff. You can dive into the more specific, uh, kind of on your own time with research. But um, in general, conventional theory is going to predict rare, poorly preserved fossils. Uh, you know, you can imagine just looking around, stuff today is not being fossilized just 
when it dies and lays on the ground kind of thing. Uh, you right. know, I mean, roadkill, uh, for example, does not get dragged off into the road and then become a fossil. It gets eaten <laughs> or uh, bio-disintegrated eventually uh, by the elements. Uh, we just don't see fossilization happening to the degree that we see it in the fossil record. Uh, but flood theory would predict common, well-preserved fossils. And um, the latter, of course, is what is consistent with our fossil record. Now, it would also predict continuous change and divergence within the record. I mean, we all know about the theory of evolution and what kind of things. And everybody talks about, well, what about all those transitional forms we should be seeing that we don't, that we don't see? Well, there are a way, there is a way, excuse me, to, to understand transitional forms from a creationist perspective. So that's not an issue. But the fact of the matter is that we don't see anything near what we should see in, in terms of what kind of fossils are there, if evolution is actually um, is true. So flood theory would predict stasis and abrupt appearance. Um, so you heard about the Cambrian explosion, I'm sure. Of course, this is right. usually interpreted in terms of long ages. But there's a reason why we find uh, the abrupt appearance of fossils in the fossil record. And why we have so much good representation in the fossil record of species that are currently alive today and of animal groups that are currently alive today. Um, we would, we should expect to see, I mean, if we're, what we see in the fossil record, in other words, is only a fraction of the life that should have existed on the earth if it's 4.5 billion years old. But if flood theory is correct, what we have in the fossils is a pretty good representation of what we have today. And, uh, and this is the, this happens to be the case. Um, and then finally, uh, in terms of a comparison, uh, conventional theory would predict rare to common stratomorphic intermediates. So a stratomorphic intermediate would be a fossil with intermediate position in the rocks with respect to the rocks and form with respect to the organism in most groups, if, if that kind of makes sense. Um, so it would be a, a transitional fossil, but that's not really a good way to, of, of putting it. Uh, flood theory would predict extreme rarity in most groups. Uh, the fact is that we find none in most groups, and they're extremely rare in others. Um, and good creationist theories have been uh, 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 put forth to interpret those. So when you just look at the fossils... Uh, just in, in terms of basic, you know, what should we see if millions of years of slow processes are true versus what do we see if a single year catastrophic event is true? And in general terms, certainly what we find is more consistent with, um, w with flood theory. And uh, you can even get more specific. I mean, there are, um, uh, you know, you've heard of, uh, maybe you've heard of, um, uh, I forget what they're called, but it, oh, polystrate fossils. So like you've got trees yes. that, that are formed and uh, they exist in, in what should be millions of years of, um, of, of time. Uh, in fact, they uh, transcend those layers. You have got organisms that have been rapidly buried in their, what, what would, what you would call a death position or their death throes really, um, trying it looks like they're even trying to escape from something um you, you've got uh you've got fossils that of uh of nautiloids that should be buried and nautiloids are kind of like a they, they don't exist today but they're a um uh probably a, a pre-flood um organism <clears throat> excuse me a pre-flood organism that uh, kind of has a very long cone-shaped shell, and they were water drilling, water drilling, of course. And these things should be laid down flat 
if you find them preserved anywhere. Well, we've got a bed near the Grand Canyon that is like six miles long, full of these nautiloids. It's a nautiloid. I think it's called the nautiloid bed. And they're buried um, vertically, not horizontally. Something um, took care of these things with the quickness. Um, uh, and as every new fossil discovery comes out, we d- just recently, I forget the name of the dinosaur, but just recently there was a dinosaur fossil in the news. It was huge news because it was so well preserved. And of course, it was attributed to local flooding. Uh, so the more we see things like this happening, uh, it just stands in further confirmation that, uh, that what we're looking at in the fossils is actually what we should expect if this is true. And uh, we probably don't have time to read the whole list right now, but I, I've got a, a great list here actually proposed by Henry Morris, who you mentioned earlier, that kind of gives some some retrodictions um, as to what the fossil record should look like under flood conditions. And sure enough, it's exactly what we find. So there are two ways of looking at it. You could look at that and, uh, and say, okay, well, maybe this happened over an extremely long period of time. But the point is, that's not the only way of looking at the evidence. There's another way to look at it. And again, when you, when you put the expectations back to back of the two different models, it becomes even more clear which one uh, makes the most sense in terms of fossils. Right. What's interesting, you know, as you've been talking, it seems like there's so many things that um, despite the fact that they assume gradualism, that there's so many things they have to go, oh, well, there, there must have been this catastrophic event that caused it. Well, okay. <laughs> exactly. And that kind of uh, goes to uh, why I mentioned that since about the ni- 1970s or so, this um, neo-catastrophism idea has been coming, coming in. Just this idea that gradualism is true but we can make room for some local events here and there. And so that's, most geologists would hold that today. Um, But there's still those hurdles. I mean, if you can just, um, if you can, it seems like cheating. Uh, I hope that's not a childish way of putting it, but it seems like cheating. It it kind of, you know, uh, you know that a theory is not, um, it doesn't really hold up when it's not falsifiable. Uh, Falsifiability is, you know, you should have something, some kind of expectation should be able to falsify your theory um, and be make it to be replaced by another one. And so what we have is, okay, well, we can explain all these areas by gradualism, uh, even though you could explain them by flood theory. There, there are these areas that you could explain by gradualism, but you know, this other area over here can't be explained by gradualism, so we have to make room for some local flooding <laughs> or some right. other we, catastrophe. Yeah, we, which which is not a completely you know out of the ordinary idea. Be like, okay, well, some catastrophes do happen on small scales. Sure. But after a while, as it starts adding up, that more and more and more and more things need a catastrophic explanation. Yeah, uh, th- there should be a point where you go, wait a minute. Um, maybe, you know, rather than looking at a hundreds of minor cataclysms, hey, let's stop and think maybe there was a big one. Yeah, no, exactly right. Exactly right. And what's really interesting is you mentioned the, uh, uh, like the, the cataclysms that we do see, earthquakes and, and things like that. And guess what? Tsunamis. These things are better explained by flood theory. Uh, and here's just one reason why. Uh, if you ever, uh, if you get a, 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 next time you have a cup of water, and you might have done this, but um, whoever, whoever's listening, um, 
Next time you get a cup of water, put an ice cube in it, let it float in the top, put your finger on the ice cube, press it down, hold it under the, under the water for a minute, and then take your finger off. And of course what you see is this bobbing up and down of the ice cube as it settles down. This is, um, in, in, in geology, this is known as isostasy. And when what we think is happening, when we see these um, awful tsunamis and earthquakes, I mean, we've got uh, earthquakes um, documented in the fossil record that we're able to pick up um, thousands of feet of sediment and literally pick it up and move it from one place to another. And wow. yeah, I mean, powerful, powerful stuff. And what's interesting is we have good reason if, if, if they're if the young age flood theory in this case is true. Uh, and we observed a cataclysmic event like the flood, we should actually expect to see unrest today because it takes about 25,000 years or so, or at least it's, it's predicted that it would take about 25,000 years or so from the unrest that the flood caused to actually settle down. And so we still see those things happening today. And there is no catastrophe 25,000 years ago in earth history that would explain the fact that all of this geologic and tectonic activity is happening. So the flood theory itself is actually a better explanation for the things that we see today. And from a theological perspective, it's just a continual reminder that God is God. God does have the power to judge his people. And not only that, but he has judged his people in the past. So there's actually a theological element too that kind of works into it. It's interesting. Yeah, it's amazing how whenever something's true, everything kind of lines up with it. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? <laughs> Isn't that just weird? Yeah. So we can talk about some of the rocks real quick. Or Okay, yeah, go for it. I'm not sure how you are on time. I know you're... Yeah, yeah, that's okay. I'm, I'm all right for a few more minutes here, and I'll, I'll try to make some of this stuff quick um, and, and just kind of where you could, you know, people could look into it further if they wanted to. Um, so I just have a few points here. So as far as rocks go, uh, we have some, um, I've called them stratigraphical oddities. Um, so things that are, are kind of funny if, uh, if in fact, um, the old age theory is true. They're kind of unexpected. So we have one of the sandstones um, in the uh, um, Grand Canyon. is called the Coconino Sandstone. And there are footprints actually in this uh, uh, sandstone. And I'm just going to read something here that's kind of a, uh, it's actually a quote from uh, Dr. John Whitmore. And he is a uh, pretty well-respected um, uh, geologist. And this particular article was in Answers in Genesis, but I'm just going to go ahead and read it because I think it's good. Um, so these are animal tracks in the, in, the, in, the, in the Coconino Sandstone in the Grand Canyon. He says this, The tracks have characteristics that don't match tracks left in the desert sand dunes, um, which would be the conventional explanation. All right, so these tracks, uh, the, the Coconino Sandstone is thought to be a kind of a windblown desert sand, sand dune on conventional dating theory. One of the most interesting things, I'm quoting again, about these footprints is that the animals were almost always traveling up the dune slopes. Additionally, the tracks Tracks often seem to begin and end suddenly, and the toes are often pointed in odd directions, unrelated to the animal's direction of travel. Climbing to escape rising flood water would explain these features. Leonard Brandt, who has done the most field work on these footprints, has also done laboratory studies of salamanders walking on various types of sand, dry, wet, and underwater. The experimental tracks that best match the Coconino sandstone uh, tracks were made underwater. 
Flowing water would also explain the sudden appearance and disappearance of many tracks as the current picked up animals and they landed in new places, close quote. So this is just one thing that (laughs) there is a conventional explanation for it. But notice you don't have to explain it that way, right? You can explain it another way. And not only that, but this other way of explaining it was tested and looks like it makes more sense. So, um, you know, there's good reason that to, to see that. We also see something, uh, another stratigraphical oddity, and this is the last one I'll mention this morning, but it's called uh, drop stones. We see drop stones, and these are large rocks and boulders that have been deposited between layers of sediment. And they are explainable under uniformitarian conditions, but they're very difficult to explain. But they make perfect sense on flood theory. I mean, wa- you've seen the power of water. I mean, any local flood will tell you the power of water. Water has the power to move these gigantic stones and be deposited in between the layers of sediment that are being laid down as water goes across the continents. And so that's exactly what we see. Um, another evidence in the rocks is the lack of, um, of erosion marks. So uh, as mm-hmm. rock builds up over time, uh, basically, you know, we're talking about you know, many, many thousands and millions of years in some cases in between certain rock layers, we should see uh, lots of weathering and erosion going on in between those. Um, and we just don't see that. There are, there is uh, periods of um, uh, of erosion in between some of the mega sequences, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Um, but there is no, uh, especially some of these ones that are taken from the Grand Canyon. I talk about the Grand Canyon a lot because uh, geologists can see uh, the vast majority of the layers of the earth in the Grand Canyon. So it's a very popular right. place uh, to study geologic activity. And so there are many examples just in the Grand Canyon where we can see that there are no erosion marks. Um, so there's a, a couple sandstones. There's a tapiot sandstone, the red wall, uh, limestone, um, and a spot below the Hermit Foundation, and then another spot below the Coconino hand, uh, sandstone where we just find these flat, featureless, um, you know, knife edge almost boundaries with no sign at all of weathering, layering, and erosion. Um, and there are a couple places where, where uh, some things may be found, but again, they're explainable. And the fact of the matter is that, uh, generally speaking, there is, uh, you know, the evidence at least suggests that these are things that were buried over uh, a very short amount of time and rapidly laid down one over the other as different pulses of water um, rushed across the continents during uh, the tectonic events that were happening. So, you know, we have a lack of erosion marks. Another thing in the rocks is called cross bedding. Cross bedding. Uh, so basically, when water um, moves across sand dunes and it, it drags rock along with it, um, it makes these uh, marks based on the the rocks and the other materials that was being dragged across those uh, those beds. And this is uh, these sediment marks are called cross beds. And Dr. Art uh, Chadwick, he is a, uh, a, a geologist, paleontologist, uh, and a taphonomist. He studies how fossils are actually made. Um, he surveyed uh, PhD dissertations. And the reason he did this is because uh, most people in their published papers aren't talking about little features like crossbeds. Uh, but the guys trying to get things published uh, as they're researching for their PhD and things like that, they're going to put every single bit of detail in. So this is detail that you're not going to find in some of the major publications because it's just uninteresting. It's like, who cares about this? Um, <laughs> but check this out. 
he now has collected over 1 million data points. And many of these data points, I mean, certainly not, nowhere close to a million, but he's actually gone and verified um, many of these that he found. And what he discovered is that the direction of the currents in the rocks below what we're pretty sure are the flood layers uh, and the rocks that are, are above what we think are flood layers, there is absolutely no consistency whatsoever in these in the direction of these currents. I mean, they are just every single which way, um, you know, suggesting that nothing important was really was really going on. But in the rocks that we think are actually flood layers laid down during the time of the flood during that year, he found a consistent current from east to west possibly due to the, the, the tidal locking of the moon actually drawing it in that direction, all across the world. Now, you have to keep in mind that you have to reconfigure the continents to match you know, wh where they grew apart from the original mass continent, and that makes sense as to why you find these all across the world. But isn't that interesting? Uh, I mean, it, it, it's one, it's yeah. one, yeah, it just, it, it speaks of one pulse of water coming through and, and being drawn in that direction. Um, and so it's very directional, which is not expected at all on conventional theories, but um, has a happy home <laughs> uh, in young age creationism. Uh, uh, real quick, two more things. Uh, lamination. So basically, um, there are tiny microorganisms that live in sediment. And what they do is they they uh, they do a process called bioturbation, and so what this means is they um, they disturb and rework uh, the sediment because they're microorganisms that are are, are just disturbing it and they live in it. Um, otherwise, the sediment would be finely layered, and so we see this very commonly. You can see it uh, in in shelves and things as you go out onto the beach into the water. You can see where. Um, sediment has been reworked and replaced by um, other incoming storms and things like that. But flood sediments are almost universally laminated. So this means one of two things. Um, either there were no organisms living there to disturb the sediment during the time that, that it was there, or there wasn't enough time when the sediments were laid down for the process of bioturbation to take place. But here's the thing. We find fossils of these organisms all throughout flood rocks. So it wasn't that they weren't there. They were there. They're just fossilized, meaning or at least suggesting that there was not enough time for the process of bioturbation to take place when they were put down, suggesting they were put down um, quickly. And then the last evidence in the rocks, uh, and jump in anytime you want, but the last evidence in the rocks is that of uh, mega sequences. So uh, a sequence in geology is a formation. Uh, basically, on the bottom you've got sandstone. Uh, in the middle you've got shale, and then on the top you've got some form of limestone. And uh, so there are six major mega sequences that you could find all over the Earth. Um, and a mega sequence is, of course, a, a sequence just larger. Uh, on a bigger scale, and some of these are just miles thick, and three of the main ones uh, that you can see in the Grand Canyon are the Sauk, the Tippecanoe, and the Kaskaskia, and they're named after Indian tribes, and what we have here is limestones appearing all across, I mean, continent-wide um, deposition of these layers all at one time, of these mega sequences, and it's in between these mega sequences um, when one transitions to the other, that we start to see uh, erosion and some of the marks of weathering and things like that. But in the actual mega sequences themselves, 
we don't see hardly any of that at all. And so that suggests that these huge, I mean, these six different mega sequences um, probably represent, and there were a couple of them who kind of run together in different places, but for the most part, these six probably represent individual pulses of water as they went across the continents, laid down literally miles of layer um, all at one time. And most of these, I mean, some of these are continent-wide, uh, some of these, you can see the same ones in uh, Tennessee and Pennsylvania, um, but they might appear in Europe, maybe, uh, like in England, um, in the same exact kind of position. So we have uh, worldwide events, continent-wide events um, that suggest large amounts of water depositing the sediment. And these are things that are just extremely, extremely difficult um, to explain on old age theory. I mean, that, again, you can, you can work things around and you can try to come up with your explanations. But what seems more obvious is a large catastrophic event by water. And I've even heard one scientist, just to wrap up this part of it, make the claim uh, that probably about 98% of the geologic record of, of what we have in the rocks is much better explained by this theory of catastrophic plate tectonics than conventional plate tectonics does. It's quite astounding. Good, good. That was, and, and what's interesting, and while I may have been um, out of circulation on this stuff for a while now, I, I know enough to know that what you've talked about here only scratches the surface. Oh my, oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. so, um, and to be honest with you, I, I was hoping, I don't think we're going to have time. I was hoping to uh, be able to talk about flood legends. Um, but maybe that's just something that you, you look into or your listeners can listen into or look into for themselves, um, is that we find evidence all throughout culture of flood legends. The last, uh, right. number I heard was somewhere between 300 and 500 of these, um, that, you yeah. know, it certainly seems mm -hmm. like after the tower of Babel event, this flood legends of this flood were preserved throughout those generations. Um, there's a point where it's like, Hey, every civilization on earth that we can find records of talk about this event. There's a point where you go, Hey, maybe it actually did happen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And the details are not exact, which is what you would expect. Uh, again, this yeah. is an expectation of, of the theory. Uh, many things that people think are difficulties and we can't go into all of this, but you know, even down to, I just wrote about this on my website. That's why it's fresh on my mind, even down to Neanderthals and stone tools and cave dwelling and things like that. These are things that people actually pull out because they think they are problems for the biblical view. But when you actually look at what would be expected under what literally would have happened in those conditions, we see everything that we would expect. So they're not actually problems for our view. They're expectations of it. And learning how to articulate right. that in, in conversations um, really makes really makes a difference. And if you want to dive in further to this, um, if I may suggest a resource, uh, it's not mine. Okay. Um, I certainly won't get paid for mentioning it, but I, I literally have told people that I think it is the best absolute deal. As far as origins go, this is the best money that you can ex spend at all to learn more. Um, if some of your uh, people may be familiar with a, um, a, a documentary that was released in 2017, I believe it was, called Is Genesis History? And yes. uh, the documentary was great. I would highly recommend it. Um, 
However, there is so much more to the story than what can be seen in the documentary. And if you go to the website, isgenesishistory.com, they have a resource. It's, I think it was called the IGH uh, Students and Educators Conference. It's on there. You can find it. It's $10. $10 is all. And it actually has um, over 70 lectures with, I mean, you can download the PowerPoint presentations or you can just, you know, I mean, you can see them when you watch them. They give downloadable audio, downloadable video, and the presentations uh, in, in PowerPoint format or PDF format, rather, where you can actually watch over 70 lectures from the scientists that were in the movie, as well as uh, some additional scientists that they brought in who go through, I mean, each area. There are so many videos on geology, astronomy, biology, biblical studies, anthropology, and these are some of the most well, I'm talking about well-respected guys. I mean, some of the best scientists in the industry, even on secular uh, terms, talking about uh, these events and evidence for a young earth from all these different disciplines. There's so much stuff on geology there. Uh, I was going to recommend a couple books, but I think this covers it. I mean, you could really get such an education from the guys who are actually doing the work. This is not filtered through popularizers and, and other creationist organizations. These are the actual scientists who did and submitted the research. I mean, two, two or three of the guys who submitted the original paper on catastrophic plate tectonics in 94 are there in the video or in the in the conference explaining it. I mean, I've got a there's a two a two hour long plus video on the, just the geophysics of the flood, an hour and a half long video on the sedimentation of the flood. Um, so if you want to learn more about this, I, I I don't think I can recommend a better investment than to spend ten dollars on the Is Genesis History Conference DVD, um, or or rather the download. You'll learn a lot. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Okay, well, I think that we are probably about. Um, out of time. Yeah, <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, speaking of resources, if you want to plug what you do, if someone wants to learn more about you or see a podcast or article or anything that you put out, where would they go? Yeah, sure. So, um, you can go to steve And, uh, if you're curious how to spell that, uh, maybe, uh, brother, uh, Mark will put it in his, in his, uh, notes for you to get, or it's, uh, you can just go to steve Schram and it's S C H R A M M.com. And, uh, you can find everything there. I do a weekly, uh, a weekly blog article that is more generally apologetics based. Uh, I do talk about creation some there, but it, it's mostly, um, you know, just a variety of topics. Uh, and then I do a weekly podcast on Thursdays, and I'm actually getting ready to rework the format a little bit where it's, it's going to be done in series. So it might not be exactly weekly, um, but on Thursdays, uh, my podcast that comes out, and it's called the Creation Academy. Um, and in the Creation Academy, we, we deal with stuff like this um, on basically a weekly basis. I've been doing it for pretty close to uh, pretty close to a year now. Actually, I'm 51 episodes in as of th- as of uh, as of Thursday of this week. So, um, yeah, it's, it's it's really exciting. And um, uh, past that, I'm developing. I'm working on in 2019. I'm hoping to launch what it will be called the Creation Academy Honors Program, which you can get more information about by going to join TCA. 
Co. And on this honors program, I'm going to be doing in-depth video, um, kind of like I'm envisioning something kind of like the conference I just recommended, but on a regular basis, we'll be putting out new videos uh, and uh, audio content and written content and uh, eBooks. And I'm hoping to get actual creation scientists in to help do some Q and A's and explain some of their latest research. So uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a good time. Exciting things uh, coming down the pike, Lord willing. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. I think we've done a pretty good job of showing, even if people don't believe it, the claim that there is no evidence is just flatly false. Debunked. Debunked. All right. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. I appreciate the time and uh, information you've provided. Absolutely, Mark. Thank you for having me on. It's uh, It's been a blessing. Yes, sir. Have a wonderful day. You too. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. As we uh, said in our final remarks there, you know, you may not uh, have somebody who is convinced by the evidence that we've presented for a global flood. But one thing uh, that certainly cannot be denied is that there is evidence for such a thing. Uh, To say that God hid the evidence is uh, certainly not to deal fairly with the facts that we have available. And remember, evidence is just really a body of facts. And there are different interpretive ways to understand those facts. And it's all about what assumptions you are willing to apply to the nature of reality. And if we apply biblical assumptions... For sure, uh, there is plenty of evidence for a global flood. Let's go ahead and say a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We want to thank you for the opportunity to be able to proclaim your message, even past our own uh, podcasts and articles and materials. Thank you, Lord, for uh, allowing us to uh, be a guest on another podcast and to be able to spread the message of creation even further. And Lord, we love you for that. We love you for the ability that you've given us to connect with you and to study your word and your world. I pray now that you would help us, Lord, not to take that for granted, but Lord, to use that to the best of our abilities to become an even greater witness for you in these days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for uh, joining me again this week on the Creation Academy. If you'll remember last week, we dealt with the historicity of Adam, and uh, this week looked at a global flooding event. Remember, what we're discussing overall here is the destruction of paradise, and so we have dealt with the theology of creation, what we can learn about God from his creation. Uh, And then we looked at why Adam and Eve must be seen as historical figures. And then this week we dove into evidence for the global flood uh, event. And so what we're going to do now that we have that foundation laid is backtrack to just before the flooding uh, event occurred. We're going to look at who were uh, the sons of men. Uh, We're going to talk about that directly next week, and we're going to talk about why God used a global flood, and then we're going to finally deal with why it is that 
for some reason, God bestowed his grace upon Noah in the midst of this terrible, terrible event. So um, that's what is upcoming for you uh, in the coming weeks. And so I appreciate you joining us. Um, Please, please continue to join us uh, to finish out this series and as we move into the next one. All right. Uh, Thank you. God bless you. Have a good week. Thanks. Bye-bye.